Hello, and welcome to Scanner Today's AI Talk, where you can hear from actual AI researchers about what's actually going on with AI and what is just clickbait headlines. I am Andrei Kurenkov, a third-year PhD student at the Stanford Vision and Learning Lab. I mostly focus on learning algorithms for robotics. And with me is my co-host... Hi, I'm Sharon, a third-year PhD student in the Machine Learning Group, working with Andrew Ng. I do research on generative models, improving generalization of neural networks, and applying machine learning to tackling the climate crisis. All right. So first episode, exciting. Uh, Sharon, how are you today? I've been reflecting on how the coronavirus has actually uh, brought together researchers globally uh, on, on a mission to work on something collaboratively. And so I guess that is the silver lining around the coronavirus. Um, but otherwise... I've been holed up at home. Yeah, working from home <laughs> has been a little challenging, but uh, I guess we are trying to make it work. And as we'll discuss a little later, uh, it seems like it'll have some repercussions for actual conferences and how research gets done uh, in your term. And how are you, Andre? For my part, uh, I'm pretty good. I had a paper deadline just last Sunday, a week and a half ago, for nice. the International Conference of Intelligent Robots and Systems. So yes, uh, after that deadline stretch of work i've been uh kind of recovering <laughs> recharging so it's been nice to take it a bit easy cool so yeah enough about ourselves let's uh, go ahead and talk about the news and topics we'll be discussing uh today let's go ahead to our first topic of surveillance and there was recently this kind of bombshell report that we'll start with which is about the company clearview Preview is a company that sells facial recognition uh, software. It has a massive database and there was a leak that showed kind of their client list. And the client list turned out to be huge and it turned out that the Justice Department, uh, ICE, uh, Macy's, Walmart, many, many organizations were using uh, this company's product. And so this kind of implies that Clearview is being used not just for large-scale crimes, uh, that the Justice Department might be overseeing, but perhaps, you know, types of shoplifting from Walmart or Macy's and make perhaps smaller things that are being enforced too with the software. And I think this starts to call into question what the boundaries of their view might be. Exactly. So they, they claim their facial recognition technology is meant for law enforcement and agencies, but this leak showed that they have been working with over 2,200 clients uh, who include companies and individuals in addition to law enforcement. Uh, so that's pretty weird. Uh, so the leak came from internal documents that were leaked from an anonymous source. And uh, yeah, it showed that not just law enforcement, but also college security departments, uh, attorney general's offices, and multiple countries like Australia and Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia have been using their tech. Very interesting to hear that uh, individuals are leveraging this technology as well. And I can only imagine what kind of applications they are using it for, uh, perhaps to hunt down very specific types of people, perhaps not even people who've committed real crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's almost mafia-esque and is certainly concerning. A senior associate at the Center on Privacy and Technology at the Georgetown Law School called Claire Garvey said, this is completely crazy. Here's why it's concerning to me. There is no clear line between who is permitted access to this incredibly powerful and incredibly risky tool and who doesn't have access. There's not a clear line between law enforcement and non-law non -law enforcement. Mm-hmm. 
And um, as this article notes, there are currently no laws regulating the use of facial recognition at the federal level. Uh, there are proposed bills, but uh, basically it's unregulated. And so individuals can use it for all sorts of things. And uh, this article also notes that uh, collectively, all these ag agencies, companies, and institutions have done something like 500,000 searches. So for images of a person of maybe your face, they've tried to actually get your name and identity uh, using the technology. What's interesting is that because Clearview is largely driven by profit, uh, it's unclear how they are vetting their potential international clients or even domestic clients, particularly uh, perhaps countries with records of human rights violations or authoritarian regimes. Uh, so this, this is certainly concerning that uh, the vetting process might be more financially driven than, than ethically driven. Mm -hmm. And this yeah, article also notes that uh, the CEO of a company did not strongly deny they would sell the technology to countries with, for instance, uh, where being gay is a crime. So you can imagine there's many potential misuses by authoritarian regimes, and it's really concerning that um, this company seems to not take a strong stance against it. So I will note that they uh, said that they would never sell to countries that are adverse to the U.S., such as China, Iran, or North Korea. Um, of course, uh, if they were to do that, they would probably be shortly shut down by the government in some way. Uh, so yeah, so I think this is. Pretty surprising to see, I mean, Clearview has been around for a little while, but this is the first view into just how prevalent the use of this technology is. And it's another reminder that, you know, uh, yes, there might be killer robots in our future, but uh, there's a lot to sort of be concerned about with AI right now that's actually happening in the real world. And use on Clearview has just been escalating across the past several weeks and months. Um, and uh, recently, Apple has also disabled Clearview AI's iPhone app for breaking Apple's rules on distribution. Uh, indeed. So what happened was Clearview has apparently been using the developer program uh, where you can distribute your app uh, to people who are supposed to help with the development uh, of it instead of having it on the store. And that's basically sidestepping a process that Apple has in place for uh, clearing certain uh, regulations and so on. This isn't unprecedented. Of course, Facebook previously had a developer program similar to this that was used to track teenagers' online habits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it seems like Clearview is basically reliant on this way of operating, of distributing via this uh, method to the individuals and so on, so they can use this uh, facial recognition on their phone. <laughs> so um, it, it'll be interesting to see if they can actually find a better uh, way to make it work. But at least for now, uh, Apple has disabled their ability to do this. What's interesting is that this definitely raises the question of how much. How much agency should Apple have over other companies and and how much how much can Apple really be disabling and enabling on their phones? You know, how much control should they have vis-a-vis uh, -vis control that Clearview and Facebook perhaps have? Uh, and there's definitely a poorly defined line or at least area of what harm is and what harm to the consumer is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in this case, uh, no one's going to be crying <laughs> because Clearview uh, can't distribute its, uh, its creepy app 
but uh, there are instances where maybe we would like to do some research involving crowdsourcing and it would be beneficial to distribute an app. And it seems maybe not too clear how we could go about it um, because of how Apple operates. Okay, so that's uh, enough about Clearview. Um, sadly, it looks like it's not the only uh, company to be looking out for in terms of facial recognition. So there was a recently news story from Vice about how a small company is turning Utah into a surveillance panopticon, <laughs> was the title. It was this company, Banjo, that has been given real-time access to state traffic cameras, uh, CCTV, and public safety cameras, and more, uh, so that they could detect anomalies. And this is really a huge amount of data to give to a small company for the, this vague uh, goal of detecting anom anomalies. Banjo has basically argued that they need as much data as possible to enable a better system, which is possibly true, actually, for a machine learning system, though it is concerning that they are getting multiple streams of data that perhaps violate uh, people's privacy mm -hmm. considerably. Yeah, and it's also not clear just how deployed it is at this point. So if their technology is actually flawed, they claim they can, for instance, uh, identify active shooter situations. Do they get uh, false positives? Uh, do they get false negatives? It seems unclear. Uh, and so it's, it's a little disturbing to see that they have this much access with relatively little proof that they deserve it. They mentioned live shooter events uh, in particular that they want to prevent. And it does make me wonder how much this type of technology will enter the conversation around gun control. You know, if guns are not, uh, are not controlled that much and people can liberally use it, should we also allow an AI to be surveilling the, the state? Uh, and so I, I wonder how that would be entering that, those discussions. Yeah, I think it is an interesting point that in general, the pitch that this company has that if you have an AI uh, program looking over cameras, you can really catch dangerous situations much faster just because you can uh, track things. So it does seem beneficial uh, for the public. The question is how much scrutiny does this company deserve and how much oversight uh, it has. So on to our next article, the U.S. fears live facial recognition in Buenos Aires. It's a fact of life. Essentially, in Buenos Aires, uh, they have live facial recognition systems that can function on 300 camera feeds at a time and automatically send a notification to police over messaging uh, apps like Telegram when they find a potential match. And since there are more than 300 cameras available to the police in the city, uh, the video feeds from both underground and above ground are cycled through. Up until now, the police have been fairly enthusiastic about the system, and uh, they have recently tweeted about seven cases in which the technology was used to catch a fugitive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is interesting and sort of an example where the technology is actually deployed. It's being used to try and catch criminals. And this article notes that little is known about the technology or how it's implemented. Uh, it seems like there is little, little uh, transparency here. And it has some stats uh, where the facial recognition system identified 595 people to police. Of those 595 
cases five were false positives, so there are identifications that are wrong. Uh, so the system said this person uh, from a camera has this name and it was just wrong. Lack of interpretability in the system and explainability of the system uh, are particularly concerning if law enforcement or the people wielding this technology don't have a lens into that. Though I do recognize that if, if those qualities were known to the public, then this technology could be exploited as well. Uh, so that's something I would be particularly concerned about if a bad actor, let's say, puts on a mask that looks like someone else. Um, what, would that, what would that cause? For example, mm. um, so I think there are ways to exploit such a system that could be pretty dangerous if the explainability, interpretability of these models, of these systems, uh, were known to the public. At the same time, uh, if they are known to the the police force and police are using it benignly, that's fine. But they are incentivized to perhaps have more false positives and false negatives, right? So. I believe that the incentives are slightly off, but it's almost also at some point or to some degree understandable that, that they wouldn't reveal everything about the system. Um, so it's this really tricky line of, of ethics. Yeah, it's it's a complicated topic. It's, it's honestly above our head <laughs> as AI researchers. We are not law experts or ethics experts. We can... Um, Maybe, yeah, as you mentioned, there are some interesting related topics like uh, recent research has showed that you can print out a little pattern and confuse this, these systems into not identifying you or even identifying you incorrectly. So that, that does have implications for how much transparent, transparency into the algorithm you want. In the end, of course, um, it seems like we'll need some oversight and we'll need some uh, proof that these things are being deployed with some limitations. Um, and yeah, in the case of Buenos Aires, it seems like that's less true for now. Uh, hopefully, as this technology spreads, uh, we collectively, <laughs> as a species, kind of figure out how to go about uh, this technology. One concern is over-reliance on this type of technology, where a police or perhaps a human looking at the footage cannot tell who it is, but the algorithm says it confidently thinks it's this other, is, is this person. And in fact, it is not this person. Relying on the technology there over human intuition, judgment, or ability to perceive uh, an image, that is, that's very concerning as well. Mm -hmm. And this ties into something we know quite well as AI researchers, which is that in general, AI systems right now aren't very reliable. So whenever you do use one, ideally use that together with someone. So you have AI kind of give you uh, something that's uh, detected or recognized, and then you have a human in the, in the loop to verify and follow up. Uh, and that's probably the most effective way to go about it uh, with what we have today. Now, speaking to the topic of this technology spreading and how that's... Uh, happening. In fact, uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, the police is rolling out live facial recognition to try and likewise basically see live situations where someone is doing something dangerous um, to respond more quickly. Uh, so this ties a little bit into recent uh, major events uh, has been in London. So there were cases where, for instance, someone started attacking people with a knife 
uh, it was quite traumatic. And the hope is if you have live facial recognition and live monitoring, you can um, try and reply quicker and uh, limit harm. What's interesting is that the article also notes that it should not be left to law enforcers to calculate how societally disruptive their technological reach is becoming or to gaze into the mouth of potentially authoritarian outcomes. Yeah, uh, the argument here in this article, uh, which is titled AI and Policing Better Than a Knife Through the Chest, <laughs> a little bit provocative, that is that um, there's no real evidence that this stuff helps yet, and there are other ways to spend funds to help ensure our security. So you could, for instance, just have more police uh, in public spaces um, to help ensure public safety. This article definitely reminds me of how researchers in looking at using AI systems in courts uh, have told me that if you lead a conversation with telling people, hey, we're using AI to decide on how this trial will go, people freak out and think it's terrible. But if you lead with how biased people, humans actually are and judges actually are, and say that we're building software to help mitigate that, they will, they will react differently. And I, so I think it is a give and take because humans are naturally very biased as well. Uh, and so it's a matter of how much is this AI mitigating that and how much is it enabling that further and being confirmation bias. Yeah, uh, this author uh, went on to suggest that the police should consult with uh, civil society organizations about the technology and pointed out that uh, we urgently need a regulatory framework to limit the current unrestrained use of the technology. And we need to see an evidential basis for any technology that could result in injustice and discrimination. So it's a tricky line. We need to know the limitations the police and government have set for themselves so we don't end up with a big brother 1994 <laughs> situation. Correct. And uh, hopefully we have some evidence that this stuff actually works uh, before we kind of agree to it being in our everyday lives. I really hope there's sufficient funding going to some of these non-governmental institutions uh, that are there to keep check. Uh, law enforcement from doing things that might be harmful to civilians, such as uh, Liberty or Big Brother Watch in the UK. I really hope that there is actually government funding towards them or some kind of funding towards them that could enable them to to act independently and help be this check. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we haven't had as much news uh, in the US yet about this, but we do have the NSA <laughs> and we have had some news this last decade. <laughs> about uh, government uh, monitoring. So uh, it seems like only a matter of time till we'll have to actually reckon with this stuff in a pretty major way. Uh, hopefully we'll have uh, such civil society organizations to sort of uh, look out for us normal people. <laughs> right. Well, San Francisco has banned facial recognition. That's true. We are in a, in a little special zone where everyone is thinking about it and talking about it. Uh, that's true. Okay, shall we move on to the next topic, which is a little uh, less depressing and a little more nerdy, uh, but that's where we can put our AI researcher hats on and stop talking about things kind of beyond our understanding. And that's about pretty much AI research and how we do it. 
Uh, so in response to these things, uh, so uses of AI that are concerning, uh, there's been kind of a lot of developments lately uh, and discussions about how we should do it. And we'll start by mentioning a pretty big one that happened just about two weeks ago, I think. The conference uh, in Europe's, which is uh, a massive AI conference dealing with uh, cutting-edge developments uh, in applications of uh, modern kind of very impressive AI, uh, kind of released their new guidelines for submitting new research. And in it, they had a, a new uh, policy that was kind of interesting, which was that in the papers for the first time, researchers are asked to include a statement of societal impact to kind of discuss the positive, uh, possible ramifications of the research, uh, the drawbacks, and basically what to be aware of as far as ethical concerns. I think this is really compelling and a great precedent. Uh, some people think it's just paying lip service to ethics, um, but research with potential ethical concerns will actually be given considerable extra consideration and flagged for potential concerns. Uh, and that will then uh, be given to a special set of reviewers with expertise in ethics and machine learning to uh, give it a second look before, before publication. What I do hope is that this statement um, has a due date that is after the deadline so that people will not just write a random sentence um, and actually put some thought into it. I I think this would actually change the way I reflect on my work and give me pause and a time to, to reflect on it in a way that I know that my fellow researchers are also putting in that time and reflection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this had some discussion within the community. Uh, some uh, spicy tweets were going on uh, where basically people were saying, you know, oh, now we got to be armchair philosophers and you know, think about possible consequences. Um, but I also agree that I think it's generally a good thing. We don't have to be experts at, you know, ethics or law to be able to say, okay, this technology has these limitations. It shouldn't be deployed in these contexts. These are things to be aware of uh, when you are looking at it from a broader impact standpoint. And also uh, another requirement uh, was that Authors now need to disclose financial conflicts of interest in a paper. And that's really useful because now there's so much research in industry and huge companies, and there's so much uh, collaboration between academia and industry that uh, some really murky situations might arise. Um, so hopefully this disclosure uh, of financial conflict of interest uh, will help avoid anything. I hope these statements will be published along with the paper and that people could actually comment on those sections and ensure that something reasonable is stated there. Mm -hmm. I think that is that would be a reasonable way of incorporating this um, as well as a more serious way and not just paying lip service to it. I think this is a first step. I don't think it's perfect for sure. And I understand the criticisms around it. But I think this is better than doing nothing. Yeah, it's a start. Uh, it seems we'll have to see how it works. Maybe we'll refine the idea, but uh, it seems like a good first step. And one thing we should mention, actually, I don't know if uh, you attended Europe, actually, as did yes. I. And there were a couple papers that uh, had people a little bit uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> 
Correct. Yeah, so I recall there was a paper, I believe, on trying to match a person's or to generate an image of a person's face from their voice, which many people noted had multiple ethical problems. Um, generally, it's, it's a bit transphobic. Uh, it's just not scientific, really. And there were also uh, some research about uh, recognizing someone's politics uh, from some data. So yes, there were actual examples of uh, papers that many agreed were ethically dubious, and hopefully this would help with avoiding such situations or help the authors reflect uh, on their work and position it in a more um, ethically considerate way. Yes, though... Of the criticisms, Roger Gross of Toronto's Vector Institute complained that the new policy will lead to trivialization of important issues and argued that social impact should be left to researchers who focus on it. I actually believe that we should be embedding this into our research and that it could actually bolster a piece or an article like the one you mentioned, where if the researchers state the, the, the ethical limitations of their work, that could actually lend more light and weight to their work and actually make people say, okay, I can step back for a bit, understand that you see the limitations similar to technical limitations and be able to see the value of your work a little bit, right? And also the limitations. I think that this could actually bolster people's work more than more than take away people's mind space from it, which is what Roger Gross is saying here. Exactly. Yeah. And interestingly, so as often happens, the discussion happened on Twitter, but for some reason, AI researchers are pretty active. So when uh, Roger Gross had this opinion, pretty prominent AI researcher, uh, Joseph Redman, uh, replied and noted that he himself uh, left AI research due to ethical concerns. So Joseph Redman developed a pretty uh, significant AI model called YOLO. <laughs> it has to do with object recognition and uh, computer vision. And he said that uh, when he saw how much military applications and privacy implications uh, AI had now, he decided to actually leave uh, academia and research and AI development. And... Um, this in, in turn resulted in a lot of discussion of like, is this the right response to there being dubious applications of AI in your research or should you stay uh, and do the research and actually, uh, as we are discussing, maybe do more to proactively uh, discuss the ethical implications, how your work should be used, how it shouldn't be used, uh, stuff like that. I think Joseph Redmond leaving is actually in line with what Roger Gross would want, which is having... AI researchers just focused on AI, uh, though I would say I I actually think we need more people who think about both in the field um, to really push forward AI that would be safe for the future. And I think this is very much in parallel with uh, other fields. So this is by no means a precedent whatsoever. Uh, for example, in biology and uh, genetics, people have thought quite a bit about this when eugenics um, were a topic of research. And researchers, similar to Roger Gross, really wanted to just say, we just want to focus on the science. Um, and everyone agreed that they should focus on the science until uh, one day some policymakers said, if you only focus on the science, we'll just shut down all of this field. 
And that's when they started discussing, okay, okay, maybe instead of shutting down all of this field, let's talk about, you know, what we could possibly do. And I think, I think that's the danger to it where uh, scientists just want to focus on one thing and maybe, and people think that that makes them more effective, but perhaps not, right? That's not what society needs. Yeah. Uh, Redman um, said that he'd come to realize that facial recognition basically has more downsides than upside. And then said that uh, the technology would not be developed if more researchers thought about the broader impact uh, of their work. I mean, basically what uh, this conference in Europe is asking people to do. And I don't think I necessarily agree. I think um, as with any technology, of course, uh, there are positive uses and negative uses. And facial recognition, uh, as we said, can have positive uses of trying to track down lost, lost people, for instance. Uh, trying to identify dangerous situations. So um, another student, another person in the discussion on Twitter uh, expressed the opinion that instead of leaving, uh, for instance, we could use our positions as experts to try and advocate for the correct use and deployment of this technology. And I think that's mostly where I stand as, as well. I think there are many ways to advocate for that. And I think actually what Joseph Redmond did was one way of advocating for it by bringing to light that, hey, he would take this extreme action of abandoning his, I don't want to say life's work, I'm sure he'll do many more great things, but uh, his his at least graduate work that he dedicated quite a bit of time to and that has uh, achieved quite a bit of acclaim in the field. Uh, so I think it was quite a compelling action to take and enabled people in the field to really reflect on this even just for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it, it does speak to this interesting place that AI as a research field is in, where we had kind of a crazy decade in a way where we had some research breakthroughs uh, early around 2011, 2012. And um, since then, things have just been moving super fast. So we've gotten voice recognition, facial recognition, um, translation, all these things have improved enormously basically because we could throw a bunch of data and compute at some very powerful techniques. And now uh, that we've basically milked those techniques quite a bit, I think we are starting to catch up with, well, what are the implications uh, now that these technologies are powerful and actually being used out there in the real world? How does that, uh, what does that mean for us as researchers and how we do our research? And um, yeah, this is just another reflection of, of that point where we are. Yeah, and, and to that point, uh, we can mention quickly, actually, there is an ongoing discussion on this notion of publication norms for responsible AI. So uh, there's this uh, partnership on AI, which is made up of many big uh, institutions that do research, that it has been discussing, has been thinking about uh, how to do responsible publications, if some things should not be published, if we should have ethics statements, things like that. And so, yeah, again, it's just a very active area of discussion. And hopefully even a couple of years, we kind of figure it out. Right. And I think this direction is great, though the partnership on AI does come out with pretty broad guidelines, or at least an initiation of broad guidelines. And I do I, I would like to see much more specifics and much more concrete uh, guidelines that someone else perhaps or that they could uh, come out with um, that would be much more, I think, effective 
Mm-hmm. Broad guidelines have generally not been effective. Yeah, I think uh, part of the reason we mentioned it is they laid out a timeline recently for this effort. So, so far, we've had a lot of discussions, but nothing too concrete. And now they actually have a plan for the next few months to try and lay out something more useful. So we'll be keeping an eye on it, and hopefully uh, they can add to the discussion in a useful way. And regarding the publication process, Yashua Bengio, on his blog um, has written an, a piece on time to rethink the publication process in machine learning. And we can say Yoshio Benjio, by the way, is, is like a massive name, right? So he, he's been around for decades. He's one of the big names uh, in the current AI boom, right? Yoshio Benjio is one of the recent Turing Award winners uh, in AI, uh, and people definitely follow his leadership. Um, so specifically on culture, Benjio has said, The research culture has also changed in the last few decades. It is more competitive. Everything is happening fast and putting a lot of pressure on everyone. The field has grown exponentially in size. Students are more protective of their ideas and in a hurry to put them out by fear that someone else would be working on the same thing elsewhere. And in general, a PhD ends up with at least 50% more papers than what I gather it was 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, so it was a, a, a blog post where he expressed his thoughts. And I think as current PhD students, uh, you and I can broadly agree <laughs> that this characterization is fair. This is pretty fair. Yeah, it's, it's a very fast-moving field. Uh, the expectation is to have at least one paper per year, uh, if not two or three. So it's getting a little crazy. What I like about this post is that Yashua uh, lays out concrete steps or potentially new models for confidence publication or sorry, publication in general in this field. Uh, So he first laments the effects of a switch to the conference publication model because conference papers don't get cleaned up, not just journal papers. uh, And the surface level productivity belies papers that have less depth or quality uh, and has more errors, lack of rigor, or are just incremental. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the argument is basically we need to slow down a little bit. (laughs) Um, And we have this site archive, right, which is basically a website where you can put up your papers. And his argument is that is already enough to make sure we can move fast, which is something a lot of people uh, say is good about AI research right now. But at the same time, we need to rethink the structure of how we do paper submission, paper reviewing, paper publication to encourage a bit more reflection, a bit more polish, a bit more scientific rigor. Uh, do you, would you agree with that idea, Sharon? I think I would broadly agree with that, as long as that would also encourage people to go to conferences in general. I know conferences are largely used to socialize, to meet people in the field um, and highlight uh, selected work. But if there isn't uh, enough work being presented there, would people actually go? Would they justify that going? Perhaps as long as the most prominent people do go, then it'll be fine. But will that degenerate into what perhaps other fields have, uh, like in math or something where prominent people do not go? So it doesn't feel you're less compelled to go. Mm. Um, So you have less value at the conferences. Um, Bengio does put out a new model that says that we should first submit papers to a fast turnaround journal like JMLR, which is a journal for machine learning research. And then the program committees uh, can pick papers they like most from those already accepted and reviewed papers from this journal. 
Uh, and what's interesting is that I actually have uh, a fairly recent uh, paper with Yashua, uh, Yashua Pentio here uh, on on climate change and tackling climate change. And we did submit to a journal and published there. So perhaps he's already pushing this implicitly before <laughs> this blog post because <laughs> uh, it was earlier in February. How did you like the journal submission process? It was actually quite quick, so uh, uh, it was fine. Okay, nice. Yeah, I think I have, I, I broadly agree. I think it's a good idea to try and slow things down a little bit and encourage a bit more reflection, <clears throat> reflection and polish. At the same time, this basic structure where you have a few deadlines per year for conferences and you try to hit them does encourage you to actually get the ideas developed and uh, experiments running and everything. So having just had a deadline like last Sunday, as I mentioned, it was kind of a lot of work leading up to it, but at least we finished it up and, and got it there. Uh, whereas maybe it would have taken a lot longer if we didn't have that forcing factor. So it's, it's a tricky thing. Um, maybe a hybrid approach would be nice where we have more of a acceptance of journals in addition to conferences. It's something we'll have to see, I guess. And I think one last thing we can mention uh, before ending this first episode is with regards to conferences, we are in a slightly interesting place now with uh, the COVID virus where usually conferences are a huge deal for AI. So that's where you publish your papers. That's where you go to present them and talk to people. And now that's not a, such a good idea because uh, the more large in-person events you have, the more spread there will be. So many uh, upcoming conferences are sort of considering how to do things and we may actually end up trying to uh, go more online and virtual and we'll, it'll be interesting to see if it works. I think this is an opportunity to test out uh, quite naturally uh, how well remote conferences do uh, and how well we can leverage this type of remote conferencing software to enable an, uh, maybe perhaps not the same experience, but hopefully an equally fulfilling experience uh, and perhaps even better in some respects. It definitely makes me think of one of my favorite papers of all time by Jim Holland, Beyond Being There, which uh, whose thesis largely states that when we create virtual software that perhaps tries to mimic uh, presence, we can never get there. We can never perfect or mimic exactly physical presence or physical, uh, or physical interactions. But we can create a completely new experience that is better in different respects. So even if we don't mimic it, it could be better in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think many people lament kind of missing out on the coffee chats and uh, accidental encounters you have, which, yes, you probably won't be able to do in uh, virtual reality. But as you say, maybe we can do other things that you can't do in person. And this actually ties into uh, the previous blog post by Yosha Benjiro, in which he said that climate change is a real problem. And having conferences where you fly in thousands of people from all over the world, that's a uh, non-trivial amount of uh, CO2 emission. So moving towards having more remote attendance, more virtual attendance will help us uh, emit uh, less carbon gas and also benefit those with fewer financial resources and with disabilities. So yeah, now it's interesting that the virus has actually forced the whole community to maybe move faster on it than we would have otherwise. Agreed. Okay, 
So that was a pretty fun discussion of the internals of AI research. Uh, hopefully it's interesting to people who aren't just grad students like us. And that'll be it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can go to skynettoday.com to uh, see all these articles and more and to subscribe. Uh, I am again, Andre Krenkov. And I'm Sharon Joe. Okay, so that's the first episode. Hopefully this is actually good and please tune in next week.